0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today we're delving into mysteries. In my mind, the greatest unsolved mystery is that of life after death, from which arises many questions, the most obvious being, is there life after death? Followed by a host of other questions, such as, if so, what form does it take? What dimension does it occupy? What proof do we have? And especially this one, is a ghost Proof of life after death? I've been wanting to tackle the life after death question ever since reading Proof of Heaven by Eben Alexander. But first I think it would be more fruitful to chip away at some of the actual circumstances that lend to the belief in life after death and the belief in the existence of ghosts, also called apparitions, is the most common of those circumstances. Look at any poll on the matter and you'll find that roughly half of all human beings believe in ghosts and half do not or won't admit it. The New York Times released an article recently claiming that reports of paranormal activity, chiefly ghost sightings, has risen sharply this year, and they attributed it to larger numbers of people sheltering at home for long periods of time. Window shades are shaking with no breeze, footsteps are being heard in attics, electronic devices are acting up, and people are starting to see things. People are apparently going nuts. That doesn't surprise me, and it's not a true indicator of ghostly activity, but I have no doubt it's true. You can only stay cooped up for so long. People on the average do enjoy ghost stories. If you're a screenwriter looking for ideas, all you need to do is come up with a good ghost story and not a horror flick, but something most people can enjoy. Remember the 1990 film Ghost? Bruce Rubin won the Academy Award for Best Screenplay. The plot centered around a young woman whose husband is murdered. Her life is now in jeopardy. And his ghost is trying to save her from the same fate. What makes the story fascinating is the number of challenges her husband has to face because he's a ghost in order to warn her of her situation. Ghosts just can't affect our lives. They can appear in dreams and sometimes in reality, but generally it's accepted that they cannot pick up a pencil, speak to us, or change our human reality. In this story, the ghost of Demi Moore's husband, played by Patrick Swayze, manages to cross that line. That outcome made Ghost the top-grossing movie of 1990 and that brings me to the first of today's stories the greenbrier ghost the greenbrier ghost is a strange account of a paranormal situation in which a ghost of a dead young woman appears in dreams to her mother over four consecutive nights to tell her mother that she was murdered which no one had suspected this testimony which included the method of how she was murdered and by whom led to an investigation which uncovered the crime and sent the murderer to prison It's one of only a handful of known cases in which a crime was solved and a murderer convicted based upon the testimony of facts revealed by a ghost. In January of 1897, in Greenbrier County, West Virginia, a 24-year-old woman named Zona Hester Shue, the wife of local blacksmith Edward Shue, was discovered lying at the foot of some stairs in her log home by an 11-year-old neighbor boy, her body in an awkward pose as if she had fallen. After the boy discovered her body, he quickly rode to inform the doctor, who lived 14 miles away. Her husband's given name was Erasmus Stribling Trout Shoe, who now went by the name of Edward, and who had been a drifter from a county north of them who had arrived in Greenbrier County earlier that year. The two courted and were married soon after. Back in those days, in those rural counties of West Virginia, it was much easier to remain in the country in which you were born and had relatives. People were tight-knit and not easily accepting of others. When someone new showed up, people naturally wanted to know all about them. Zona's mother's name was Mary Jane Hester, and she didn't agree with the courtship or the marriage. She knew nothing of this young man and had a bad feeling about him, but Zona wouldn't hear it. When Dr. Knapp arrived at the house, he found Edward Shue upstairs, sitting on the bed with his wife's head cradled in his lap. He had dressed her in her best clothing a high-necked, stiff-collared dress with a big scarf tied around her neck and a veil covering her face. The husband was in a state of extreme distress, interfering with the doctor's efforts to look at the body to determine the exact cause of death. He even told the doctor at one point not to touch the body. This prevented Knapp from doing a thorough examination, although he did notice some bruising on Zona's neck and face. He listed her death as an everlasting fate and then later as death from childbirth. This later determination was published in the Greenbrier County newspaper, admitting that she was three months pregnant. Dr. Knapp had been treating her for some time prior to her death. When Zona's mother, Mary Jane Hester, was informed of her daughter's death, she immediately suspected foul play, and wasn't shy about sharing that idea with her neighbors. Zona's body was taken to her parents' home where it was displayed for the wake. Edward's shoes stood near the coffin. "'preventing anyone from getting too close, "'and even at one point placed a pillow "'and a rolled-up cloth under his dead wife's head "'to help her, as he said, rest easier. "'It was strange, and he was acting strange, "'and people started to talk. "'After the funeral, as Mary Jane Hester "'was folding the sheet from inside the coffin, "'she noticed that it had a very unusual odor. "'She plunged it into the water basin to clean it, "'and when she did, she saw that the water turned red.' Then the sheet turned pink, and the red water disappeared. This was very strange. So she boiled the sheet in water, but that failed to remove the stain. That convinced her that this was a message. Her daughter had been murdered. For the next four weeks, Mary Jane prayed every night for Zona to come to her and tell her how she'd been murdered. And then it happened. According to Mary Jane, a bright light appeared in the room, and then the air in the room became very cold and an apparition formed, the ghost of her daughter. Over the next four nights, she reappeared and told her mother that Shu had been an abusive and cruel husband, and that he had attacked her in a fit of rage because she hadn't prepared any meat for supper. He grasped her by the throat and then broke her neck in a fit of rage, and to illustrate this, Zona's ghost turned her head around on her lifeless form. Mary Jane soon caught up with the local prosecutor, whose name was John Alfred Preston, and who was known as a good prosecutor and a fair man. He listened closely to Mary Jane's account, which sounded sincere, as well as her pleading that he reopened the investigation immediately, that a huge injustice had been done to her daughter. After listening intently, Preston agreed to question some of the people who were involved, and he started with Dr. Knapp. Dr. Knapp admitted to Preston that he really hadn't been able to do a decent autopsy due to resistance from the husband and he agreed to do one to settle any and all doubt as to the cause of Zona's death. Suspicions had been mounting in the county, and the results might well prove Shoe's innocence, or guilt. The local newspaper reported that Shoe complained vigorously about the autopsy, and he was required to attend. A jury of five men gathered in the chilling building to watch the autopsy being performed along with officers of the court, a coroner's inquest. Three physicians took part in the autopsy. They examined Zona's stomach for poison, and they opened her chest cavity and abdomen as required. Then they began examining the head and neck, and as they did so, they began to whisper to one another. Then one doctor turned to Shu and said, Well, Shu, we found your wife's neck to be broken. On her throat were marks of fingers indicating that Zona had been choked. Her neck had been dislocated between the first and second vertebrae. Shue was charged with murder and sent to Lewisburg to await trial. He entered a plea of not guilty, and when asked by reporters, he told them that his guilt could never be proven. While awaiting the trial, talk was circulating throughout the county about Shue's past, and the newspapers, which actually employed journalists that investigated news, came up with some interesting facts. Zona was Shue's third wife. Shu had come from Pocahontas County, which was north of Greenbrier County and while living there, he went by one of his given names, the name of Trout. In 1889, while he was in prison for horse theft, his first wife, Allie Esteline Cutlip, had been granted a divorce. She claimed that he had beaten her often. One of those beatings was so severe that it required a group of men to pull him off her, at which point they dumped shoe in an icy river to, as they put it, cool him off. Back in those days, women didn't have much recourse to get a divorce or seek police protection. They were pretty much on their own, and neighbors would not interfere unless it was a matter of life and death. In 1894, and now out of prison, Shue married Lucy Ann Tritt, his second wife, who died under mysterious circumstances just eight months after their marriage. That was when Shue changed his name from Trout to Eddie and moved to Greenbrier County. While in jail, Shue was in good spirits and occasionally talked to reporters who were trying to get a story. At one point, Shue admitted that his life's goal was to have seven wives. Because Zona was number three, and he was still young, he felt pretty sure he could accomplish his goal. Back in those days, you didn't have to wait eight years for a trial, and this one took place in June of 1897. Numerous people testified against him, but no one was as effective as Mary Jane Hester. She was the victim's mother, as well as the first person to notice the mysterious circumstances surrounding her daughter's death. Her attorney, the prosecutor, Preston, wanted her to tell it just like it was, and not bring up any mention of the spirit encounter, which members of the jury might see as irrational. And it wouldn't be admissible as evidence anyway. Her testimony couldn't be cross-examined by the defense, and therefore was hearsay under the law. Shue's attorney believed that if he could get Mary Jane to testify about her story of Zona's ghost appearing to her with the grisly details of the murder, that the jury would see Mrs. Hester as mentally unstable, After all, who's going to believe that her daughter's ghost really appeared to her? These were just the overactive visions or delusions of a distressed mother. The judge couldn't discount her testimony because the defense had asked the questions. Most of the townspeople believed that Zona's ghost had appeared to Mary Jane Hester. After all, it was her who first suspected Shue as a murderer. Shue testified in his own defense, and although he insisted throughout that none could prove he had done it, Someone had placed those finger marks around Zona's neck, and he had a history of abuse and crime. Ten members of the jury voted to hang him, but the eleven said no, so instead of the gallows, Shue got life. And life in prison didn't go well for Shue. He died three years later at the West Virginia State Penitentiary in Moundsville. Zona was apparently able to rest in peace, for her ghost was never seen again. An historical marker stands today in Greenbrier County, West Virginia, and it reads this way. "Interred in nearby cemetery is Zona Hester's Shoe. Her death in 1897 was presumed natural until her spirit appeared to her mother to describe how she was killed by her husband, Edward. An autopsy of the exhumed body verified the apparition's account. Edward, found guilty of murder, was sentenced to state prison. It's the only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murder. But was it the only known case? Actually, the Red Barn, our third story, is a similar case in England. We'll return to our second story, The White House Ghost, right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show, and The White House Ghost. Possibly the most haunted house in the U.S. is the White House in Washington, D.C., and the most reported of the ghost sightings there involved the Lincoln family. Abraham Lincoln died in office before he could see an end to the war. His entire term in the White House was spent trying to hold together a divided nation, and if anyone would have possessed a spirit that wanted to stay to see how things worked out, it would have been Lincoln. According to the White House Historical Association, the first ghostly goings-ons in the White House occurred in 1862, when Mary Todd Lincoln, grieving over the loss of her young son Willie, who died of typhoid in the White House on February 20th of that year, began to participate in spirit circles or seances in the Red Room at the White House and the Presidential Cottage at the Soldiers' Home. For the curious, the Soldiers' Home was a Gothic revival structure located on a hill three miles from the White House, and Lincoln, as well as three other presidents, liked to escape the summer heat in D.C. by spending August through November there. It was at Lincoln's Cottage at the soldiers' home that Lincoln wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln's Cottage is maintained by the National Park Service, and you can still make reservations to visit today. Between 1901 and 1904, a White House worker named Jerry Smith began sharing details of his years of ghost sightings in the White House with the local newspapers. And whenever things got slow, they would come to him for more. He had begun working there in the late 1860s, working during the Ulysses S. Grant years, first serving as a footman, and later doing duty as a butler, cook, doorman, and official duster until his retirement in 1904. He claimed to have seen the ghosts of Lincoln, McKinley, Grant, and several of the first ladies. In 1911, there were many reports of a little boy who was called The Thing, who gave the Taft domestic staff quite a scare that year. President Taft's military aide, Major Archibald Butt, wrote to his sister Clara, The ghost, it seems, is a young boy about 14 or 15 years old. They say that the first knowledge they have of the presence of the thing is a slight pressure on the shoulder, as if someone were leaning over your shoulder to see what you might be doing. President Taft ordered Butt to tell the White House staff that the first person to repeat stories about the thing would be fired. Eleanor Roosevelt never admitted to having seen Lincoln's ghost, but did say that she felt his presence repeatedly throughout the White House. She also said that the Roosevelt family dog, Fala, would sometimes bark for no reason at what she felt was Lincoln's ghost. President Dwight Eisenhower's press secretary, James Haggerty, and Liz Carpenter, press secretary to First Lady Lady Bird Johnson, both said that they felt Lincoln's presence many times. The former president's footsteps are also said to be heard in the hall outside the Lincoln bedroom. Lillian Rogers Parks stated in her 1961 autobiography, My Thirty Years Backstairs at the White House, that she had heard them. Margaret Truman, daughter of President Harry S. Truman, said she heard a specter rapping at the door of the Lincoln bedroom when she stayed there, and believed it was Lincoln. President Truman himself was once awakened by raps at the door while spending a night in the Lincoln bedroom. He wrote in a letter to his wife, I sit in this old house all the while listening to the ghost walking up and down the hallway. At four o'clock I was wakened by three distinct knocks on my bedroom door. No one was there. Dan Place is haunted, sure as shootin'. Several unnamed eyewitnesses have claimed to have seen the shade of Abraham Lincoln actually lying down on the bed in the Lincoln bedroom, which was used as a meeting room at the time of his administration, while others have seen Lincoln sitting on the edge of the bed and putting his boots on. The most famous eyewitness to the latter was Mary Eben, Eleanor Roosevelt's secretary, who saw Lincoln pulling on his boots, after which she ran screaming from the room. Others have actually seen an apparition of the former president. The first person reported to have actually seen Lincoln's spirit was First Lady Grace Coolidge, who said she saw the ghost of Lincoln standing at a window in the yellow Oval Room, staring out at the Potomac. Theodore Roosevelt and Maureen Reagan and her husband of all claim to have seen a spectral Lincoln in the White House. Maureen had bumped into Lincoln's spirit upon waking one morning in the Lincoln bedroom. Her father, President Reagan, reported that she awoke to a figure standing at the window looking out. She could see the trees right through the figure. It soon turned and disappeared. The Reagan's dog, a spaniel named Rex, was seen a number of times barking frantically near the door to the bedroom, but he would not set foot inside. Rex would sometimes bark at the ceilings when the Reagans were watching TV. A number of staff members of the Franklin D. Roosevelt administration claimed to have seen Lincoln's spirit, and on one occasion, Roosevelt's personal valet ran screaming from the White House, claiming he had seen Lincoln's ghost. Perhaps the most famous incident was in 1942, when Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands allegedly heard footsteps outside her White House bedroom and answered a knock on the door, only to see Lincoln in a frock coat and top hat "'standing in front of her, at the sight of which "'she promptly fainted. "'British Prime Minister Winston Churchill "'loved to retire late after taking a long, "'hot bath while drinking a scotch. "'There is an account that on this occasion "'he climbed out of the bath and naked, "'except for his cigar, walked into the adjoining bedroom. "'He was startled to see Lincoln standing "'by the fireplace in the room, leaning on the mantel. "'Churchill, always quick on the uptake, "'simply took his cigar out of his mouth "'tapped the ash off the end of his cigar and said, "'Good evening, Mr. President. "'You seem to have me at a disadvantage.' "'Lincoln smiled softly, as if laughing, "'and then disappeared. Churchill was left smiling in embarrassment. "'President Lyndon Johnson supposedly encountered "'Lincoln's apparition during a moment of great distress. "'President Johnson reportedly spoke to Lincoln, "'asking him how he handled an unpopular war. "'As almost all of you know, Lincoln was president during the American Civil War, which was extremely unpopular, and Johnson was dealing with massive backlash over the Vietnam War. Lincoln reportedly replied, Don't go to the theater. Lincoln's ghost was reportedly seen outside of the White House as well. In Loudonville, New York, Lincoln's ghost was said to haunt a house that was owned by a woman who was present at Ford's Theater when Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth. Other Lincoln hauntings included his grave in Springfield, Illinois, a portrait of Mary Todd Lincoln, and a phantom train on nights in April along the same path as funeral train followed from Washington, D.C. to Springfield. Susan Ford, the daughter of President Gerald Ford, ran smack dab into the specter of President Lincoln alongside the fireplace in the Lincoln Room. She never re-entered the room until, on a dare, she and a friend slept in that bedroom on their last day at the White House. They weren't sure what they would see. Later they were awakened by Susan's mother Elizabeth dressed in a sheet and reading the Emancipation Proclamation. Susan later laughed when telling the story, saying, Mom, we're a little too old for that. The last sighting of Lincoln's ghost was in the early 1980s when Tony Savoy, White House operations foreman, came into the White House and saw Lincoln sitting in a chair at the top of some stairs. But strange things do continue to happen there. Former First Lady Michelle Obama revealed in 2009 that both she and Barack were awakened by loud noises coming from the hall. They went outside to see what was making the commotion, but nothing was moving, and they saw nothing. Jenna Bush, the daughter of George Bush, awoke to 1920s-style music coming from the fireplace in her room. She said, I was asleep. There was a fireplace in my room, and all of a sudden I heard 1920s music coming out of it. I could feel it. I freaked out and ran to my sister's room. Jenna's sister, Barbara, believed the story to be so much malarkey. But when Jenna dared Barbara to sleep in that room the following night, both heard an ear-splitting opera blaring from the same fireplace. The next morning, they asked a few White House workers, and upon being asked, they said they heard it all the time. Our third ghost story mirrors our first, except that this one happened in England. And we'll start this one right after this message from our sponsors. And now, our story. This has been called the Red Barn murder for the simple reason that the murder took place in a red barn in Polstead, Suffolk, England. It was here that in 1827, a young woman named Mary Martin was shot dead by her lover, whose name was William Corder. The Red Barn was a local landmark, and it was there that the two had arranged to meet before eloping to Ipswich. The murder was to become the most publicized murder in England in the 19th century, and it was solved thanks to a ghost that appeared in a dream to the dead girl's mother. Mary was the daughter of Thomas Martin, a mole-catcher, meaning a man who was known and hired by farms to catch and kill moles. Moleskin gloves were the rage back in those days. In March of 1826, when Mary was 24, she entered a relationship with a 22-year-old William Corder. By all accounts, she was an attractive woman, It's written that she had already bore two children for men in the area. Her first lover was Thomas Corder, whom she met when she was seventeen, and for whom she bore a child. But Thomas dropped her like a hot brick when she announced she was pregnant. That child died as an infant. She then took up with an older man named Peter Matthews and became pregnant again, but he refused to marry her, instead promising to provide her with money on a regular basis for the care of the child. Enter William Corder. Thomas Corder's younger brother, who was the son of a local farmer and had a reputation for being a liar, a cheater, and a thief, and somehow, somewhat of a ladies' man. He had been known as Foxy at school because of his sly manner. He was always finding ways to benefit himself at the expense of others. For instance, he sold off his father's pigs without permission, passed forged checks, and helped a local thief steal a pig from a neighboring village. When the local thief, whose name was Sam Smith, was questioned by a constable the best thing that he could say about quarter was that he would get himself hung one day after selling off his father's pigs his father sent him to london to find work or go to the sea but quarter could accomplish neither and fell into the company of petty criminals where he squandered the little bit of money that his father had given him but william was soon recalled to the family home in suffolk when one of his brothers died trying to cross a frozen pond but soon after Corder's father and his two remaining brothers all died within eighteen months of each other, leaving Corder to run the farm with his mother. How his father and remaining brothers died is not known, but one suspects that Corder did not like being sent away, and maybe he had set himself on a path whereby he could grab the inheritance. That he was capable of murder he would soon show. He and Mary hit it off well, and no doubt she got to know of some of the crimes he had committed. Corder wished to keep his relationship with Mary Martin a secret, but she gave birth to their child in 1827 at the age of 25, and was apparently insisting that she and Corder should marry. The child died. Later reports suggested that that child might have been murdered, but Corder apparently made it known that he still intended to wed Mary Martin. That summer, in the presence of her stepmother, Anne Martin, who was only one year older, Quarter suggested that she meet him at the red barn from where he proposed that they elope to Ipswich he claimed that he had heard rumors that the parish officers were going to prosecute Mary for having children out of wedlock which was considered a crime back in those days quarter initially suggested that they elope on the wednesday evening but later decided to delay it until thursday evening then he found another excuse to delay that but on friday may 18th 1827 quarter appeared at the martin's cottage during the day and according to Anne, he told her stepdaughter that they had to leave at once, as he had heard that the local constable had obtained a warrant to prosecute her. No warrant had been obtained, but it is not known if Corder was lying or was mistaken. Mary was worried that she couldn't leave in broad daylight, but Corder told her that she should dress in men's clothing so as to avert suspicion, and he would carry her things to the Red Barn, and she could change before they continued on to Ipswich. Shortly after Corder left the house, Mary set out to meet him at the Red Barn, which was situated on Barnfield Hill, about half a mile from the Martin's cottage. This was the last time she was seen alive. Quarter also disappeared, but later turned up and claimed that Mary was in Ipswich or some other place nearby, and that he could not yet bring her back as his wife for fear of provoking the anger of his friends and relatives. The pressure on Quarter to produce his wife eventually forced him to leave the area. He wrote letters to Martin's family claiming that they were married and living on the Isle of Wight, and he gave various excuses for her lack of communication. She was unwell, she had hurt her hand, she was sick, or the letter must have been lost. Suspicion continued to grow, and Martin's stepmother, Anne, began talking of dreams that Maria had been murdered and buried in the Red Barn. On April 19, 1828, she persuaded her husband to go to the Red Barn and dig up one of the grain storage bins he quickly uncovered the remains of his daughter buried in a sack. She was badly decomposed, but still identifiable. An inquest was carried out at the Cock Inn in Polstead, and that still stands today, where Martin was formally identified by her sister Anne from some physical characteristics. Her hair and some clothing were recognizable, and she was known to be missing a tooth which was also absent from the jawbone of the corpse. Evidence was uncovered to implicate Corder in the crime. His green handkerchief was discovered around the body's neck. The constable in Polstead, whose name was Ayers, was able to get Quarter's last address from a friend, and with the assistance of Officer James Lee of the London Police, tracked Quarter to a boarding house for ladies in Brentford. He was riding the boarding house with his new wife, Mary Moore, whom he had met through a Lonely Hearts advertisement that he had placed in the Times, and as a note, that advertisement had received over a hundred returns. "'Lee managed to gain entry under the pretext "'that he wished to board his daughter there, "'and he surprised Corder in the parlor. "'Thomas Hardy noted the Dorset County Chronicle's "'report of his capture. "'In parlor with four ladies at breakfast, "'in dressing gown, and had a watch before him "'by which he was minuting the boiling of some eggs. "'Lee took Corder to one side and informed him of the charges, "'and not surprisingly, Corder denied all knowledge "'of both Martin and the crime.' A search of the house uncovered a pair of pistols supposedly bought on the day of the murder, and some letters from a Mr. Gardner, which may have contained warnings about the discovery of the crime, and a passport from the French ambassador, evidence which suggested that Quarter may have been preparing to flee. Quarter was taken back to Suffolk, where he was tried at Shire Hall, Barry St. Edmunds. The trial started on August 7, 1828, having been put back several days because of the interest which the case had generated. The hotels in Barry St. Edmunds began to fill up from as early as the 21st of July, and admittance to the court was by ticket only because of the large numbers who wanted to view the trial. Despite this, the judge and court officials still had to push their way bodily through the crowds that had gathered around the door. The judge was the chief baron of the exchequer, William Alexander, who was unhappy with the coverage given to the case by the press to the manifest detriment of the prisoner at the bar. The Times, nevertheless, congratulated the public for showing good sense in aligning themselves against Corder, who entered a plea of not guilty. Mary Martin's exact cause of death couldn't be established. It was thought that a sharp instrument had been plunged into her eye socket, but this wound could also have been caused by her father's mole spike when he was exhuming the body. Strangulation could not be ruled out, as Corder's handkerchief had been discovered around her neck. To add to the confusion, the wounds to her body suggested that she had been shot. She had a bullet hole in her cheek. The indictment charged Corder with? Murdering Maria Martin, by feloniously and willfully shooting her with a pistol through the body, and likewise stabbing her with a dagger. To avoid any chance of mistrial, he was indicted on nine charges, including one of forgery. Anne Martin was called to give evidence of the events of the day of Maria's disappearance and her later dreams. Thomas Martin then told the court how he had dug up his daughter, and Maria's ten-year-old brother, George, revealed that he had seen Quarter with a loaded pistol before the alleged murder, and later had seen him walking from the barn with a pickaxe. Lee gave evidence concerning Quarter's arrest and the objects found during the search of his house. The prosecution suggested that Corder had never wanted to marry Maria Martin, but that her knowledge of some of his criminal dealings had given her a hold over him, and that his theft of the money sent by her child's father had been a source of tension between them. Quarter then gave his own version of the events. He admitted to being in the barn with Martin, but said that he had left after they argued. He claimed that he heard a pistol shot while he was walking away, and that he ran back to the barn to find her dead with one of his pistols beside her. Quarter pleaded with the jury to give him the benefit of the doubt, but after they retired, it took them only thirty-five minutes to return with a guilty verdict. Baron Alexander sentenced him to hang and afterwards be dissected. He said, that you be taken back to the prison from whence you came, and that you be taken from thence on Monday next to a place of execution, and that you there be hanged by the neck until you are dead, and that your body shall afterwards be dissected and anatomized, and may the Lord God Almighty of His infinite goodness have mercy on your soul. As we explained in an earlier episode of 1001, dissection was extremely popular in England in the early half of the 19th century, as medical schools were flourishing and fresh bodies were in high demand. Newly hung prisoners were first on the list. Quarter spent the next three days in prison agonizing over whether to confess to the crime and make a clean breast of some of his sins before God. He finally confessed after entreaties from his wife, several meetings with the prison chaplain, and pleas from both his warden and John Orridge, the governor of the prison. Corder strongly denied stabbing Martin, claiming that he had accidentally shot her in the eye after they argued, "'while she was changing out of her disguise. "'On August eleventh, 1828, "'Corder was taken to the gallows in Barrie St. Edmund's, "'apparently too weak to stand without support. "'He was hung shortly before noon in front of a large crowd. "'One newspaper claimed that there were 7,000 spectators, "'another as many as 20,000. "'At the prompting of the prison governor, "'just before the hood was drawn over his head, he said, "'I am guilty. My sentence is just.' I deserve my fate, and may God have mercy on my soul. Courter's body was cut down after an hour by the hangman, John Foxton, who claimed his trousers and stockings according to his rights. The body was taken back to the courtroom at Shire Hall. The crowds were allowed to file past until six o'clock when the doors were shut. According to the Norwich and Berry Post, over 5,000 people queued to see the body. The following day, the dissection and post-mortem were carried out in front of an audience of students from Cambridge University and physicians. Reports circulated around Barry St. Edmunds that a galvanic battery had been brought from Cambridge, and it was likely that the group experimented with galvanism on the body. A battery was attached to Corden's limbs to demonstrate the contraction of the muscles. To show you just how backwards medical science was then, they gave his skull a phrenological examination and it was asserted to be profoundly developed in the areas of secretiveness, acquisitiveness, destructiveness, philoprogenitiveness, and imitativeness, with little evidence of benevolence or veneration. Several copies of Quarter's death mask were made, and a replica of one is still held at the Moises Hall Museum. Artifacts from the trial, some of which were in Corder's possession, are also held there at the museum. Another replica death mask is kept in the dungeons of Norwich Castle. Quarter's skin was tanned by surgeon George Creed and used to bind an account of the murder. Quarter's skeleton was reassembled, exhibited, and used as a teaching aid in the West Suffolk Hospital. The skeleton was put on display in the Hunterian Museum in the Royal College of the Surgeons of England, where it hung beside that of Jonathan Wilde. In 2004, Corder's bones were removed and cremated. After the trial... Doubts were raised about both the story of Anne Martin's dreams and the fate of Corder and Mary Martin's child. The stepmother, Anne, was only a year older than Maria, and it was suggested that she and Quarter had been having an affair and that the two had planned the murder to dispose of Maria so that it could continue without hindrance. Anne's dreams had started only a few days after Quarter married Moore, and it was suggested that jealousy was the motive for revealing the body's resting place and that the dreams were a simple subterfuge. Further rumors circulated about the death of Quarter and Martin's child. Both claimed that they had taken their dead child to be buried in Sudbury, but no records of this could be discovered, and no trace was found of the child's burial site. In his written confession, Quarter admitted that he and Martin had argued on the day of the murder over the possibility of the burial site being discovered. Even while Quarter was still awaiting trial, the case was creating its own small industry. Stage plays were being written and acted, and an anonymous author published a melodramatic version of the murder after the execution, a precursor of the Newgate novels, which quickly became bestsellers. The Red Barn murder was a popular subject in England, along with the story of Jack Sheppard and other highwaymen, thieves, and murderers for penny gaffes, which were cheap plays performed in the back rooms of public houses. A man named James Catnack sold more than a million broadsides, which were sensational single-sheet newspapers, which gave details of Quarter's confession and execution, and included a sentimental ballot supposedly written by Quarter himself. Pieces of the rope which was used to hang Corder sold for a guinea each. Part of his scalp with the ears still attached was displayed in a shop on Oxford Street. A lock of Martin's hair sold for two guineas. Polstead became a tourist venue. With visitors traveling from as far afield as Ireland. Curtis estimated that 200,000 people visited Polstead in 1828 alone. The Red Barn and the Martin's Cottage excited particular interest. The barn was stripped for souvenirs, down to the planks being removed from the sides, broken up, and sold as toothpicks. It was slated to be demolished after the trial, but it was left standing and eventually burned down in 1842. Even Martin's gravestone in the churchyard of St. Mary's posted was eventually chipped away to nothing by souvenir hunters. Only a sign on the shed now marks the approximate place where it stood, although her name is given to Martin's Lane in the village. Quarter's skeleton, as mentioned, was put on a display in a glass case in the West Suffolk Hospital, and apparently was rigged with a mechanism that made its arm point to the collection box when you approached. Eventually, the skull was removed by Dr. John Kilner who wanted to add it to his extensive collection of Red Barn memorabilia. After a series of unfortunate events, Kilner became convinced that the skull was cursed and handed it on to a friend named Hopkins. Further disasters plagued both men, and they finally paid for the skull to be given a Christian burial in an attempt to lift the supposed curse. Interest in the case did not quickly fade. The play Maria Martin or The Murder in the Red Barn existed in various anonymous versions, It was a sensational hit throughout the mid-19th century and may have been the most performed play of the time. Victorian fairground peep shows were forced to add extra apertures for their viewers when exhibiting their shows of the murder. The plays of the Victorian era tended to portray Corder as a cold-blooded monster and Martin as the innocent whom he preyed upon. Her reputation and her children by other fathers were airbrushed out and Corder was made into an older man. Charles Dickens published an account of the murder in his magazine all the year round, after initially rejecting it because he felt the story to be too well known and the account of the stepmother's dreams rather far-fetched. The story has been dramatized for radio a number of times, including two radio dramas, one on the BBC regional program in 1934 and one on BBC Home Service in 1939. Then there was a fictionalized account of the murder produced in 1953 for the CBS radio series Crime Classics, entitled The Killing Story of William Quarter and the Farmer's Daughter. Tourists still flock to the museum in Bury St. Edmunds to see the artifacts on display. It's an old Norman arched building with narrow passages, stone floors, and jail-barred doors that bring the visitors immediately into the past, and there people stroll by to look at the grisly death mask made soon after they cut him down, a bust made of Quarter and his scalp containing one ear, and when you get past them, there's the book the book that contains all the details of the case. It's bound in tanned human skin as ordered by the judge. Quarters skin. Thanks for joining us for three ghost stories. We hope you enjoy them. We want to make sure you know about our latest 1001 podcast, 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre, where we share all kinds of spooky classic stories and accounts of the macabre. If you enjoy 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, please do stop and send us a review. We would appreciate that very much. Until next Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.